From coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Hello and welcome back. I'm Dylan Hall. And I'm Olivia DeBersier. We'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. Today, we're jumping right into our interview. This week, Terra Informer Sophia Osborne interviews Sharon Riley, an investigative journalist covering energy and the environment in Alberta for the Narwhal, an independent online magazine that reports on the basis that climate change is real and happening issue. Sophia talks with Sharon about one of her recent publications covering delinquent oil and gas companies in Alberta and their cost to taxpayers, as well as taking a look behind the scenes of environmental investigative reporting. What is it like reporting for an environmentally focused publication on issues that some people see as controversial? A question I wonder all the time. And in 2018, oceans broke heat records and studies reported collapsing insect populations even in protected areas. The global environmental situation is dire, and we wonder how do journalists prevent becoming disheartened while reporting on stories related to the big issues. Here are Sophia and Sharon pondering these questions and more. that you can't write people out of the story just because they don't share all the same values and beliefs that you do, or even share the same understanding of facts. My name is Sharon Riley, and I'm an investigative journalist for The Narwhal, which is an independent online magazine. I cover energy and the environment in Alberta. Could you talk a little bit more about the narwhal and what it does, just for anyone who hasn't checked them out, which you should if you haven't? <laughs> for sure. Yeah, the, the narwhal is run by a not-for-profit news society, and it's entirely independent and ad-free, which means we have a lot of ind- editorial independence that you don't necessarily see otherwise in the mainstream media. And we report on the basis that climate change is real and it's happening, and that's not a question that we need to be reinterrogating over and over again, but we need to be looking at what that means for the people who live on this planet and also what is being done about it. Could you tell us a bit about your investigation into delinquent oil and gas companies in Alberta and what you found? Sure. So that investigation stemmed out of some research that I've been doing for the past couple of months um, because I've been assigned to cover Alberta specifically and I'm based in Edmonton. So I've been looking a lot into oil and gas wells. I think that's a really interesting space in the Alberta political economy where you have a lot of people, farmers and landowners who have traditionally been very supportive of the oil and gas industry who are becoming increasingly upset and feeling as though they haven't been treated fairly by the companies that have been drilling or just have had oil and gas activity on their land. So I was attending a lot of surface rights meetings and hearing a lot of concerns from landowners that they had entered into agreements with companies that the company would pay them rent, because that's what's required if you're going to have a company come onto your land and, and drill and put a well pad there. They should compensate you for the lost crop product productivity if you're a farmer or for the Uh, annoyance of having someone driving back and forth across your land all the time. So farmers and landowners had these agreements, they would be paid maybe a couple thousand dollars a year, and everything was fine, but then at some point companies just stopped paying, and the farmers or the landowners didn't know where to go. 
but eventually some of them did figure it out, which is that there's a requirement, sort of a historical requirement and kind of a tacit understanding with the oil and gas industry that the Alberta government will step in and pay on the behalf of those companies if the companies are no longer able to pay. So landowners can go to the Alberta government and file an application with the Surface Rights Board to have rent paid on their behalf. So they get their money. And the whole idea was that then the Alberta government would go after oil and gas companies instead of the farmer having to go after the oil and gas company to get their money back. But what people have been wondering for a long time is if that money is actually recovered. And through uh, some freedom of information requests and just a lot of emailing of various press representatives, I finally got the numbers at least from last year, and found that less than 2% of the money is actually recouped. So the taxpayers, the Alberta taxpayer is paying almost all of the rent that oil and gas companies have not been paying to landowners. What was that number? Did you find out uh, how much money taxpayers are paying? Yeah, so it's publicly available how much money is paid to landowners by the Surface Rights Board, which is part of the Alberta government. And that number last year was around $6 million. And what we do know and can see from the trends is that the number of applications filed by landowners has been increasing by a huge amount in the last few years as oil and gas companies are having uh, tighter margins and a tougher time paying. So we knew that they were paying out about $6 million, and we found that 98% of that was never being recovered. And so you mentioned freedom of information requests, that sort of thing. I'm really interested in how you went about investigating the story and and how long it took and everything. It's really cool that the Narwhal gives you this space to do those big investigations. Yeah, so the freedom of information request is ongoing because what I'd really like to know is how much money over the past 10 or 20 years has been recovered. I'm curious. I only have the numbers from last year right now. So the numbers from last year came about after a about a month and a half of repeatedly emailing people in the government with media requests asking for this information being bounced around from department to department. And I think that what that says about investigative reporting and beat reporting is just how important it is to have time to be able to follow up on that. Because if you need to file a story that day or or the next week even, you don't have time to chase down this sort of information, whereas because the Narwhal has dedicated me as a full-time Alberta reporter covering this field, I have the time to just keep following up on it and filing requests and filing through information requests where needed, which is really great, I think, for this space. And then you also talked to the landowners and everything, which I thought was really, I I don't know, I found that really powerful, the things they had to say and just, yeah, their feelings around it. what was that like? There was even the photo of you like checking out the, the well and everything. Yeah, uh, I think that human voices are a really important aspect of this story. Um, with a, a lot of energy reporting or climate change reporting, we often hear statistics. So we hear X million dollars wasn't recovered or we hear we need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 20 percent below 1990 levels by 2015 or something. Um, We've heard these sorts of numbers for for many years, but I think it's sort of a bizarre way to report on something that's so relevant to all of us. I mean, we, we don't say our societal target is to reduce hate crimes by 35% below 1987 levels. You know, it doesn't, it wouldn't really resonate with people in the same way. So I think actually going out and speaking to people who are directly affected by the topic that you're talking about is uh, incredibly important. And I don't know, was there was there any sort of anything that you really hoped the reader would come away with after reading the article? Well, what I've been really interested in with this particular 
angle on oil and gas in Alberta is that it it shows some people who though they may be supportive of oil and gas extraction in general are st- still have some concerns about the way the industry has been allowed to go along basically unfettered in some ways for many years and you see a lot of people wishing that there was more government regulation or government was stepping in in, in a stronger way and and I feel like that's a that's really interesting and really important in this conversation. I think especially in Alberta, right? Like it, it is, I find it really hard to report on the environment here as someone who really sees environmental issues as such a, like a moral issue. Like I'm really mm-hmm. interested in environmental ethics and that sort of thing. And yeah, I, I just find it hard to kind of look at it from that pragmatic view. But I also think it's so important and really admire people who like go out and, and do those stories that will probably actually change people's minds instead of just some sort of like op-ed that's like you should care about climate change because it's a moral issue and that's the only reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find it really interesting reporting in Alberta because as soon as I say I cover the environment and I usually say I cover energy and the environment and there's a reason for that but as soon as I mention the word environment people think I'm an environmentalist and think that any journalism that I do is is at best advocacy journalism and at worst fake news and so I think trying to build a relationship with readers where they actually trust that I am going out as a fact-finding journalist and reporting on what I see and without necessarily there being an, an activist bent to it. That's really important, and I think that's something that's been lost in a lot of national media and why local media is so important, is if people know me as a reporter who covers this area and have interacted with me and have had a positive experience, even if they didn't agree with everything that was published and but still felt it was fair, I think that's a relationship that needs to be worked on by all journalists, myself included, and especially in Alberta, where there is a lot of doubt. How does that work with being from the Narwhal? Uh, do you get pushback against that at all, since you are like an, an environmental, environmentally focused publication? Yes, definitely. Um, definitely. I've had interviews that start out with, so are you an environmentalist? Or I've gone to surface rights meetings where conversations start out with, I'll tell you why I'll why I know that Al Gore invented climate change. And and those are difficult conversations to have, but I I always remember that my role, I see my role anyways as a journalist. And so I'm there to try to understand not only what people are saying, but why they're saying that. And I feel like an interview has gone really well if I've if they've said all the things that they want to say about uh, their various political opinions, but I've managed to get behind that a little bit and figure out, well, where are you getting your information from and why does this resonate with you and what experiences have you had that brought you to this place? Because I think so often we see people that are represented in the news as representatives of different political ideologies, but we're all people. And I, I've i mentioned before, I've been, I read an article by Amanda Ripley on the Solutions Journalism Network about complicating the narrative. And she talks a lot about how complexity is really important. And especially when you're talking about polarized issues, a lot of media coverage has traditionally kind of led to increased polarization and tribalization in a way, where you're either in one camp or the other and you oppose each other. But a lot of human beings are more complex than that. I mean, I I think I have more complex feelings about the environment than... I'm an environmentalist or I'm I'm this, you know, the, rather than just having two labels that represent two opposite sides, we should be looking a lot more at the gray area. And so that's what I'm trying to accomplish with a lot of my stories. Yeah, I mean, just the way so many stories are set up with like two sides being quoted back and forth, being really set up in an argument. Yeah, that, that does really perpetuate 
that idea. And I think a lot of people, especially with reporting around the environment, talk about like not wanting to have that sort of false balance. How do you get around that as someone who does want to still give voice to people who might not like fully understand climate change and everything? Yeah, well, I try to get at what people's concerns are related to the environment. They might think that climate change is A, not happening at all, or or B, not human-caused. But then when you start asking a lot of questions and don't write them off immediately as as being, you know, what people might think of them as ignorant or or just ideologically wrong, but they're people who have opinions about the environment also. And I find it really interesting to get at that because people, some people I've spoken to might not believe in climate change, but they're really concerned about pollution in their local river. So why is that? What shared values do we have where, where you're concerned about pollution and how can we have that conversation? Because I think that you can't write people out of the story just because they don't share all the same values and beliefs that you do or even share the same understanding of facts. <laughs> yeah, and that's like... It, it's just such an important part of journalism. Especially in Alberta, I would say, where there's an enormous number of resource workers and farmers and, and landowners in Alberta. And until we start telling their stories in a more complex way, we're, we're writing them out of a lot of climate change reporting and environment reporting. And then how do you balance that with also not just focusing on maybe like mostly white perspectives around um, the environment in Alberta? Yeah, I think that's a really complicated question and something that I'm working a lot more on. Since I started with the Narwhal, I've been focusing mostly on on rural issues, and that does skew towards older white men. And something I've been thinking a lot in my own journalism lately is how to incorporate more perspectives of, of different Albertans in my reporting. Yeah, I feel like I kind of have the opposite such like a really opposite perspective because any environmental reporting I've kind of done out of the U of A I'm always talking to to students who have Mm -hmm. such amazing ideas and really just the opposite of kind of that older white rural crowd so yeah I guess part of the reason I was drawn to reporting rurally initially is that first of all I'm from rural Alberta so I feel like I feel fairly comfortable and I I feel like I understand some rural issues perhaps more than someone who has never lived in rural Alberta before, but also because I feel like it's an area in the media that is not necessarily getting as as much coverage as as a lot of urban issues are. But I don't want to skew too heavily towards rural issues either, so I I definitely want to keep that balance. I just had one more question about the the oil and gas whole story. Mm -hmm. So with all of that and, and what you were talking about, with just trying to, to show like this, yeah, more rural perspective and everything, and and the interviews you did, what has been the reaction now that the story's out? I know that it's pretty new, but yeah, I mean, one of the tricky things with publishing any story is that you see social media response to it, and I get emails about it, but you get mostly either people who are really supportive or who think that it's fake news who are, who want to say something. So I'm a, I'm always really curious to follow up and hear what people are saying about my stories in the in various communities. Uh, and that's something that, that's trickier to do. Uh, I, I, not just online, I think it's always been tricky to know what the response is to your to your stories once you've written them. But I've, I've gotten feedback about people being upset that this is another way that taxpayers are subsidizing oil and gas companies. I wonder, like, do you find that there's quite a skew just given what I assume is the narwhal's kind of 
main audience do you find that you do hear from like the the other side very much about the stories yeah i consider it my i consider my stories a success if i hear from what might be considered uh the typical narwhal crowd and they're supportive but then i also hear from someone who seems as though they would be the opposite of the narwhal crowd and and they're also interested in what i've reported and so i get some of that feedback through Facebook or friends of my dad. My dad lives in rural Alberta, and I feel like if I can get the peop- his neighbors to think that I did a fair job or to get them talking about a topic, then that that's interesting to me. <laughs> Where in um, Alberta are you from? I grew up near Camrose, uh, near a village of about 80 called Kingman. Actually, it's a hamlet. Wow, that's small. <laughs> it's, it's pretty small. Yeah. Okay, and I was wondering like, how you got started as a journalist? Yeah, I got started in journalism via an interest in journalism. I don't have a background in journalism. I have, and as far as education goes, I have a degree in environmental economics from the U of A, and I did my master's in economic history in Sweden. And while I was doing my master's, I developed somewhat of an obsession for long-form nonfiction narrative journalism. And I became really interested in Harper's Magazine and eventually applied for their internship, which I got. And that was sort of a fast track into journalism for me. And it was a really good way to get to understand the editorial process and work with some of the journalists who I admired so, so much. Um, And from the internship, I went on to be a fact checker and a researcher. And I worked on a lot of people's stories and collaborated on a lot of investigations sort of behind the scenes before I moved into doing my own reporting. And that's how I got here. What uh, what big lessons did you learn when you were, I guess, coming up as, uh, uh, as an investigator and, and working with other people on their stories? Hmm. I mean, one of the big advantages of working behind the scenes as a fact checker is that you're listening to the audio of um, very respectable journalists doing interviews. And so having access to that sort of intimate space where you have hours of people's interviews that you're listening to to make sure that they've quoted people accurately and that it's just an amazing way to learn the do's and don'ts of of interviewing and reporting. So I would say that was one big lesson for me. The other is just the the amount of persistence that's required in any investigation and and the amount of time is starting out with Harper's. I became very used to the idea that a story could take a year or longer to go from start to finish. And I think that kind of reporting is really essential and is not necessarily as popular as it as it should be, because you really get a chance to get at the context and the bigger picture when you spend that much time on something. Yeah, it's so hard for most publications to afford mm-hmm. to have people doing that kind of thing. And I don't know, even at the Gateway, like I know so many of us would love to do it, but we all have our daily responsibilities. Yeah, and that that stuff just gets it's put so far back on the back burner that I know I haven't done anything like that in a, in a while. But I was wondering, I guess. Did you really jump kind of straight into the long-form investigative kind of journalism um, just because you knew you wanted to do that? Or did you spend any time doing more of that like daily news cycle kind of stuff? I pretty much jumped straight into long-form journalism. I was part of my student magazine during my master's, which was a the Association of Political and Foreign Affairs at Lunds University in Sweden. 
and it was a student magazine, and we did mostly long-form journalism articles there as well. So even in my student journalism experience, I wasn't covering the news. And I knew right from the beginning that I was mostly interested in magazine writing. So I have primarily done that. I did work for the TAI for a while and did a little bit of news reporting with them, but not, not a ton. And uh, so when did you get started at the Narwhal, and how did that sort of come about? The Narwhal fundraised to hire an Alberta reporter last summer, and so I saw the job application come up, and the position was starting in September. They wanted to have someone full-time covering energy and the environment, but specifically focusing on Alberta issues, and it seemed perfect to me, so here I am. (laughs) I guess you talked about this a bit before, but what is it like working for the Narwhal? Like, I just find it... um, they're so sort of innovative in this kind of new media landscape with the membership model and like not having any offices and everything like that. And also the website is just so nice. I don't know, like <laughs> I, I just really fangirl over um, over your website. So yeah, I was just wondering what's what it, that's like, especially since you worked somewhere that's much more tradi- traditional, like Harper's. You know? mm-hmm. And then Narwhal is spearheaded by two brilliant co-founders, Emma Gilchrist and Carol Linnett. And they together have turned it into something that is, like you said, I, I, I fangirl over it also. It's very, it's a very beautiful website. It's, it's just very um, captivating to go look at. But they also have a lot of insight into the way they want to cover the news and have been talking about and also publishing a few pieces on, on wanting to complicate the narrative and wanting to slow journalism down a little bit. Then the narwhal exists to fill a void that we feel is missing in mainstream media, which is that there just aren't a lot of dedicated environment reporters um, at our major papers or major news outlets. And we want to fill that space. So when people want to know more information about a project that they know has enormous environmental implications, they can go to the Narwhal and expect to see fair journalism that is held to a very high standard, but that does cover those issues. Yeah. I I don't know, just as someone who lives in Alberta now, it's just so cool that this is happening in Alberta mm. to me. Like Because the Thai obviously also does a lot of amazing work, but mm-hmm. that's so BC-focused. Mm-hmm. And um, and they've also really like expanded into doing culture and everything, which I think is great. But it's really cool that, like you said, you can go to the Narwhal and you know it's going to be these like environmental stories. Yeah. The job posting when I applied had said that Alberta is an investigative journalist's playground. And I, and I think that's true. And I'm surprised that there aren't way more reporters. There, there are people who are covering oil and gas in Alberta, for sure, that do an excellent job. The, the Andrew Nikiforik for the TAI has been covering it for a long time. And there are National Observer reporters um, who, who work in this space as well. But you just think that there would be a lot more. <laughs> yeah, you would. And I think also um, with the Narwhal, like the, the journalistic rigor that you talked about, and I know I've definitely checked out the like writing for us page and it's like, it's, it's kind of scary and intimidating and <laughs> in just how much it's like you, everything must be like completely fact-checked. Obviously that's a given for journalism, but I feel like a lot of the time mm-hmm. it's not really said and they make it so explicit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think whenever you're covering a topic that is perceived by some people to be controversial, being accurate is of the utmost importance. I mean, it's always important, but it can really detract from the the heart of the story if you get one small fact wrong, even if it's inconsequential. Um, I'm writing a story about fracking right now, and I saw 
about a specific company who's applying to withdraw a lot of water from a river that's a tributary to the North Saskatchewan. And I've seen other news coverage of the same story, but instead of saying, you know, 1.8 million cubic meters of water, they say liters. It just, little mistakes like that kind of take away from your credibility and how much you looked into the story. I guess this is, I feel like this is such a standard, like I'm interviewing someone who covers the environment and climate change question, but I think it's still really important, like how when you're covering all these stories, do you stop from getting too disheartened? Yeah, I I think that's a really important question. I've been thinking a lot about how it's important to remember the human side of the story and not just the science and political side, because it's really easy to hear the same sorts of headlines about how terrible everything is over and over again and either feel numb to it or feel very distressed by it. There was a headline that went around the other day that the warming of the oceans is equivalent to one atomic bomb going off per second, which doesn't... (laughs) I mean, I don't know what you do when you read that, other than feel... Uh, like you should just sigh (laughs) and I I read a piece in the New Yorker it came out late last year by Bill McKibben and he talked about how it was was a huge piece an omnibus piece on climate change he talked about how we can kind of become numb to the term climate change like we hear we hear words like gun violence or climate change and and we can kind of shut off even though those words are really important and contain a, a lot of Um, huge impacts for the planet and for humanity. Um, So I think it's important to kind of tear the stories apart into smaller pieces while remembering the context so that we can actually digest what's being said. And that maybe is the only way to not get too discouraged about it. Yeah. it's For me. (laughs) I I totally know what you mean because even as someone who really cares about the environment, wants to report on these issues and everything – when I'm scrolling through Facebook or something, like if I see climate change in a headline or like the ocean is warming faster than that, that was literally all I saw, I think today and yesterday is like the ocean is warming faster than scientists predicted. Mm-hmm. Anytime I see that, I just like scroll by it as quickly as I possibly <laughs> can. Like I don't want to click on those articles or, mm-hmm. or read about them. And I do feel like long form is kind of one of the only ways that I get that information now because it is like I sit down with the New Yorker magazine and like, I actually see the article and I actually read it or mm-hmm. actually go to the Narwhal or National Observer or something and read these articles. And it is like, if there's a human face with a story, like if the header image is of a person or something like that, mm-hmm. I find myself somewhere, so much more likely to actually look at it. Or if it is kind of a more hopeful story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. And I yeah. guess just from like a, a perspective of being in the media too it, it you do kind of also have to think about how do I get people to click on these stories mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and we've talked a lot about how much the narwhals readers anyway seem to really enjoy stories that have a, a human element to them that have a a person who's sharing their personal story and it's just it's easier to relate to I think and as long as you still put it in context and do a lot of research into the the facts that are surrounding that one person's angle on the story I think that can be one of the most effective ways to report on something okay well yeah um, thank you so much for talking to me today this was so interesting and it was really nice to meet you yeah thanks for inviting me to be on the show
Para Informer Sophia Osborne interviewing Sharon Riley, an investigative journalist covering energy and the environment in Alberta for the Narwhal. That's all the time we have for this week. If you want to hear more stories like the one we played today, visit our website at terrainforma.ca, where you can listen, share, and subscribe on iTunes. We are also now on Spotify, so you can check us out there as well. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, located in Edmonton, Alberta, and part of Treaty 6, the historic territory of the Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples who continue living and gathering here. If you have any questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet at Terra Informa. A big thank you to all of our contributors this week, Charlotte Thomason, Hannah Cunningham, and Elizabeth Dowdell. We've been your hosts, Olivia DeBersier and Dylan Hall. We look forward to catching you next week right here on Terra Informa. Bye!